The nominees for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Effects Editing are... Okay, wait. I'm sorry. Okay, I know we're not supposed to make political speeches during the Oscars, but someone must speak for those who cannot speak. Throughout its 70 years, the Academy Awards have focused only on the achievements of people, like people are so good. <laughs> the Academy has overlooked and besmirched, oh yes, I said besmirched, <laughs> the contributions that animals have made to motion pictures, and I'm going to do something about it right now. Yes, people! Ladies and gentlemen, the star of 11 motion pictures, including Clan of the Cave Bear, Legends of the Fall, and most recently, The Edge, Bart the Bear. Hello, and welcome to the advanced screening. That voice you just heard was Mike Myers introducing the one and only Bart the Bear. Uh, here to talk about Bart and animals in film is my regular co-host, Tom Kelly. How are you, Tom? Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm gonna kill the bear! Say it! I'm gonna kill the bear. Say it again! I'm gonna kill the bear. And again! I'm gonna kill the bear! Good! What one man can do, another can do! What one man can do, another can do! Say it again! What one man can do, another can do! Say it again! What one man can do, another can do! Yeah! You're goddamn right. Today, I'm gonna kill the motherfucker. So that is Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin talking about, discussing how they're going to kill Bart the Bear in The Edge. The Edge is uh, the movie that you kind of brought up last week when you were some, on some weird Alec Baldwin trip and just wanted to get as much in as you could. And as promised, Bart the Bear prominently, features prominently in that film. You know, what did the title card at the end of that movie say? It, it's, it said thanks to Bart the Bear. So... The film ended, went to black, first title card, and I've got I'll, I've got the photo here, so I'll actually read it so we'll do it properly. I, I actually I actually messaged you and said, um, justice for Bart the Bear, he doesn't get an opening credits uh, acknowledgement. And then at the end... Retrofitted in, right? Yep. So it says, like, 20th Century Fox and the producers wish to thank Bart the Bear, Bart the Bear in big text, and his trainer Doug Zeus for their contribution to this film. Good. And Bart the Bear's really good in it. Bart the Bear is phenomenal. Give him a best supporting actor. Yeah, you know what I mean? What year did The Edge come out? Oh, great question. Let's let's look up who he would have been going against for uh, best supporting. 1997. Okay, let's get up. 1997. We're still playing music over this at this point. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is the ongoing intro. Uh, for, for those wondering why you look up best supporting actor... The Edge, we talked about it last week, is this uh, 1997 film. Uh, Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins get stranded in the wilderness and get hunted by a man-eating bear, uh, phenomenally played by Bart the Bear, who starred in 11 motion pictures, according to the Oscars intro that we just listened to. So, best supporting from 1997, it's won by Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire, which, okay, that's fine. Yeah, okay, he can um, have it. William H. Macy in Fargo. I'm fine with that. That's a good one. Um, Armin Moore Stahl in Shine, the Jane Campion film. Mm. It's almost like, okay, cool. Um, Edward Norton in Primal Fear. And then James Woods in Ghosts of Mississippi. I think we can bump James Wood from that list and we can add Bart the Bear. James Wood is gone. Bart the Bear, best supporting actor. There's this one scene in The Edge where... Bart is chasing after a stuntman in a really bad Anthony Hopkins kind of hairdo. Do you think that's Doug Zeus? That has to be Doug Zeus. It's, yeah. yeah, that's Doug Zeus. And when he dives under the logs, I'm like, that's a real man getting chased by this bear. Do you think we can get Doug Zeus on the podcast so we can then ask him about the making of The Edge? Uh, we've got him on the line right now. Uh, Doug, <laughs> how are you? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. Uh, Bart the Bear is my favourite boy. I don't know what I was trying to do. What are you doing? I, I, I feel like you're trying to do improv, but it's just not working with the vibe. We are, we're not an improv podcast, clearly. Um, so, The Edge. Let's, let's, do, uh, let's talk about The Edge. Let's give everyone a bit of intro to Bart the Bear. Um, and at the end of the pod, we'll do our top five 
real life animals in film. Uh, but we'll touch on before that. We'll touch on uh, just kind of a bit of an explainer about the writer's strike. But uh, what kind of apart from Alec Baldwin, uh, what made you want to watch The Edge, which we both watched over the weekend? I think just because it was one of the it, it came across in the trailer as one of those typical 90s sort of action thriller films where there's a bit of there's obviously some sort of sexual tension going on between characters in the sense of like two men fighting over one woman um it's sh- ex- extraordinary cinematography where it was shot bizarro sort of scenario that these characters are supplanted in and obviously really good set pieces and it's almost like that's a sort of a typical 90s film where it's almost like this doesn't really make sense but the set pieces in it are excellent um and the film whoa after watching it (laughs) doesn't really make any sense the motivations for any characters in it at all i you in in that spiel you've touched on two my top two notes my first note was this is peak 90s cinema right this is the most B, if not C, movie plot ever of two guys get lost in the wilderness. They both want to fuck the same person. But it's like a C film, but with the acting of Anthony Hopkins. And Alec. Classically trained. And peak Alec Baldwin as well. And He's just, going great. And they're just stuck in the wilderness. They both want to have um, sex with Elle McPherson. They have some tension there. And then it's just them lost in the wilderness getting chased by a bear. It's, just, it's like essentially any of the kind of movies now that have some kind of animal stalking someone, except it's a real bear. They're really in the mountains. Jerry Goldsmith is doing the music for it. There's it's, The music is great. It's not oh, subtle at all. There's stunts. There's like um, plane crashes. It is when they made, I think it was another pod I was listening to um, recapping something like this, when they made old movies. They were talking about Alien versus Predator, funnily enough. But essentially... People with really good craft making a kind of pretty average idea, but making just doing their best to make a really good movie. I think um, yeah. my housemate Bron walked through at one point, stopped and was watching it and was like, this looks awesome. What is this? And I explained it to him. He's like, that's weird, but it looks awesome. And he's like, it does look yeah. great. Like, that, Where was it shot? That's one of something uh, that I never he, looked at. He stopped and looked and he's like, that's definitely Canada. He's done a lot of traveling. He's like, everything films in Canada. Every time you're watching a movie, it's in Canada. Yeah, it makes sense. that It's biblical how large the scenery is. Um, I have, I think we've got to talk about the premise of these characters. So Alec Baldwin <laughs> is a fashion photographer and he's shooting um, Charles's wife, who is played by Elle McPherson. Sort of Elle McPherson is playing an Elle McPherson character, I assume. Um and then Anthony Hopkins is playing the husband of the Elle McPherson character. And Old billionaire he husband. He's some sort of million billionaire something. He's a he's a billionaire in the nineties, which is like That's he's, rich. he's like a god to these people because he's a billionaire in the nineties. And sort of Alec Baldwin is playing Alec Baldwin. Um <laughs> As a fashion photographer, and he's very much, it's quite snappy and smarmy, straight to camera. He's talking at characters rather than with them, and I'm 100% there for it because it's Alec Baldwin just being him yep. for two hours in the wilderness, and it's great. Um, but what I don't understand is what do you think, how do you think Charles made his money? It's never referred to at any point. No. But there's so much commentary by the Alec Baldwin character about class and that, like, you're a billionaire and all you've been sipping champagne and you're a wonderful wife and you read, but you're hopeless. But now when you're you're in this situation, you you become amazing. It's like, you make me sick. And it's, I don't understand the class commentary that's occurring in this film. Well, he's a, um, he's a billionaire in the 90s who's very British and seems to know everything because he reads a lot. So my assumption is that he's just old money. He's just fallen into wealth. He's some kind of old aristocratic family because he seems to have had a lot of time to read and have knowledge about literally everything. I think they make a yeah. comment where like you just know everything and he says, yeah, but none of it's ever been useful, which is a little... His superpower is reading. Yeah. Photographic <laughs> memory and reading and having rich parents, I reckon. <laughs> I think he must... I, I agree with that idea that it's old money. It must the money must come from some sort of trust, in the sense that maybe like it's newspapers or you know what would make sense is publishing. 
Yeah, yeah, he reads all you know of these mean? books for publishing. That's actually completely spot on. And it's like he is Penguin Publishing or something like that. But the thing is, because it's not referred to, and it's so ambiguous, it's just a weird move where in if that film was made today, there would be clear sort of connections to... Because billionaires are now... I, celebrities and identity so they would make clear references that this is a bezos sort of character or this is a bill gates sort of character or this is a tim cook or an ewan you know what i mean like it's not just like generic billionaire because people know who billionaires are now and it's part of our culture and zeitgeist yeah and he um in, in that day and age it just it has to be mysterious and one of the weird things about this movie is that it's a two-hour movie about two guys lost in the bush and we know nothing about them. We know Alec Baldwin takes photos and is a bit smarmy. And Anthony Hopkins is a billionaire who reads a lot. And that's all we know. And yet they're lost in the wilderness like 25 minutes into this movie. So it's an hour and 40 minutes of two guys walking around. Was there There was something about Alec Baldwin said something about the spirit that beat the Japanese about Charles. And it's like... Is that a reference that Charles is a World War II vet in there as well? Yeah, but Alec Baldwin also made three very homophobic jokes for no reason in this movie. So I don't know if we can trust anything Alec Baldwin says. I've got a couple lines here. It's almost like he he, he says the word broads quite a lot. And it's almost like, P.S., you're kind of a powerful guy, Charles. Um, oh, that cab driver was so rude to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, he's, and he makes a comment. Charles is like dating Elle McPherson 40 years he's younger and Alec Baldwin's making comments about his repressed sexuality and stuff. Like, I think he's doing yeah. okay. And then there was the, there's the line here, you make me sick, what gets you off? Jews and taxes. Who has written this script? <laughs> Do you know who wrote this? Uh, Mamet. No. What's his name? Who's that? Mamet is like a really, really famous American uh, playwright, which makes sense why it's like Lost in the Bush kind of movie. Yeah. yeah uh, something Mamet. I can't remember his first name. But very famous American playwright. The other thing, I've got a couple of... Well, there's a bigger arc, but I want to go through some unanswerable questions with you really quickly. Um, what did you think of Elle McPherson's lime green puffer jacket in 1997? Yeah, great. Right at the start of the film, when she gets off the, the plane. Great, ahead of her time. That's what everyone. That's what everyone's wearing right now. Uh, you could see a Jenna wearing that for sure. Uh, respond question: What did you think of her in the Native American cosplay outfit while they're taking photos? Wow, cultural appropriation. That would be cancelled now. <laughs> I don't think if that was brought up, I think the magazine L would be shut down if those photos <laughs> were now getting circulated on Twitter. Yep. Um, uh, also, Alec Baldwin's bright red shirt with a leather duster when he gets off the plane as well. There are some really interesting choices from a fashion perspective <laughs> in this show. Um, I'm just looking at anything else. I think I'm good. I want to go back to the bigger arc, the whole idea that Anthony Hopkins thinks Alec Baldwin is going to kill him for Elle McPherson. That sounds such a 90s plot because today it would just be like, okay, we'll get divorced. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it, the weird thing about this movie is that they set up this tension about Alec Baldwin going to kill Anthony Hopkins in the wilderness so he can have Elle McPherson and they're in love already and they need to get rid of this billionaire. They're already having an affair yeah. that's suspected and it's revealed late in the film. So that's sort of like the sucker punch, but it was more like, and it's a sucker punch after the Alec and Charles. I don't even know Alec Baldwin's character name. No, you? just call him Alec and Anthony. Um, um, and they they've bonded Bob. because of this experience. His name's Bob. Oh, that's it. Bob, he right? yells Bob a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but but in a in a, like like he's doing a play. He like he's doing Hamlet. Bob, Bob. <laughs> Do you think this movie would have been better if it wasn't two hours and it was 90 minutes and it was all this tension of whether Bob is going to kill Charles and then they bond over killing the bear and they come home happy and realize they're best friends now? Or did you like the half an hour to go twist of actually Anthony Hopkins' character was right, Alec Baldwin did want to kill him the whole time and there's like a little showdown at the end where he tries to and falls in a bear trap. <laughs> I thought that was such a bizarre choice. I know. I thought that was so weird. It was so weird. I didn't understand it at all. It's like, 
I'm kind of like feeling for these guys that hated each other and then they bond and they survive and then it's like, oh, hang on. No, the thing you thought was happening the whole time is actually happening. Yeah, but I'm also like Alec Baldwin. Like, he's like, think about this. How how long do you think they're out there? Because there is a lot of seasons that are occurring. <laughs> they get, there is a point where it's the middle of spring, everything's green and lush, and then it literally cuts at night and they wake up and it's completely snow covered. There's the- it's like snow cats. Snow Everything mountains. is white. It's almost like four seasons in one day sort of shit. And the facial hair grows a bit, but it's not like they're walking out with beards or anything no, like it's that. It's like a three day shadow. So, so how long do you think they're actually out in the wilderness in like film terms? It's like, what are we supposed to believe? They're, how long they're out there for? The way that they skin a bear, eat the entirety of the bear, make <laughs> clothes from the bear's fur, and then trudge along like they've been out there for a year, even though they have no facial hair and no hair growth, but we've had four seasons. This is the weirdest timeline of this movie ever, <laughs> which brings up a biggest nitpick and unanswerable question of mine, right? This is the math I did. So this is the problem that they're facing. They need to get back to the cabin because everyone knew they were going to this cabin. And then they said, this lake where they crash is 20 miles from the cabin. Okay? Yeah. 20 miles. How how much is 20 miles? What is that? 20 miles is 32 kilometers. That's here to Parramatta. I looked it up. You can walk. That's not that far. You can walk that in five hours, according to Google Maps. Yeah, but it's over terrain. Oh, yeah, I know. When I wrote that down, I'm like, should I mention the terrain? And I was like, no, like, because it's five people hours. People get lost in the Blue Mountains for like a fair bit of time. It, Didn't somebody like get lost recently and then came out like a couple of days yeah, later? Yeah, she, uh, she was gone for five days and she survived off drinking wine that she had from a camping trip. Well, it's like Alec Baldwin just taking like nips of this <laughs> bourbon that he's found. And so, and then they do this whole like, compass like rub a needle on some silk and put it on a leaf on the lake and it'll spin to tell you which way is north but if they're there for it more than two days can they not just see where the sun rises and where the sun sets yeah can't they just look at that and walk 20 miles in a day yeah like i think you'd be able to walk like give it a week maybe maybe two weeks and i reckon you'd be able to walk out you'd be buggered and you'd be met like you'd obviously have some issues, <laughs> and food would be like how are we gonna like? But you could fish, and they they did fish and stuff they fish, like they that. They got fish. They killed a bear. They ate the bear. Like it's it's thirty two kilometers, five hour walk on flat terrain, and just look at the sun. And they know they need to go south as well. It's not like they don't know which direction they need to go. What are they doing? They are getting hunted by a bear for a, a good hour of the film. Let's talk about Bart the Bear, best supporting actor nominee instead of James Woods. He makes his uh, triumphant entrance at the 40-minute mark, acting phenomenally better than some actual actors we see these days. Uh, yeah. Just huffing and puffing. He comes up and shakes that log for a little bit the first time I see really it. liked it. So there's the log crossing and the characters have crossed it. There's three characters. One of them dies. Obviously, it's the 90s, so it's the, 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 the black lead gets killed in the first hour. I need to mention that. I've spent uh, every second week talking up this show from on Stan, this great horror mystery thriller show, lead actor Harold Perineau, who is the black guy that dies in this movie. I couldn't believe it. You come to me with this Bart the Bear thing about you, when you were reading out the um, the actors last week, you said Alec Baldwin, Anthony Hopkins, some guy I've never heard of, and Bart the Bear. And then I watched the movie. I'm like, oh my God, that's the guy from From. It was yeah. meant to be. And of course he dies. That death scene was horrific. Gnarly. It was like um, Leo in The Revenant sort of stuff. Oh yeah, that was this was 20 years before The Revenant. And this was just as bad except with a real bear throwing around what i assume is a dummy but it was f- with a lot of fire was- i liked the cinematography that it was doing there yeah it was um he's his character was flailing a lot for a possible dummy so i don't know if um old mate doug zeus had trained bart to fake attack him while he flails about so 
going back to the cross scene, the characters cross and Bart the bear is absolutely smashing this log going down on it again and again. It's almost like this bear is really smart. He was, Strategy, man. He knew exactly what to do. It's like, oh, I can't cross this, so I'll shake the log instead. How is he going to get them anyway? He's just trying... Didn't he... Doesn't Anthony Hopkins call him? He's like a man-eater. He's a man-hunter. Yeah, because they he eats um, Harold Perrineau's character and they run away and they're gone for like days and days or maybe months we can't tell in this movie and then Bart the Bear turns up again and as they're running away he's like this is a man hunter he's had the taste for human flesh which is which is what the old scarred face guy says at the start of the movie he says oh once once these bears get a taste for human meat it's all they want we're the sweetest thing or something like that that's so bizarre I don't know if bears are actual man hunters or not but sure do you want to invest 40 mil into that property development that the scar guy is offering <laughs> yeah a real good lake house man I'm sure people would love that um, I've got so we're going to talk about Bart the Bear's death scene and I, I really like that set piece where it's the firing they're trying to ward him off and then the next day they've planned they've done sort of an Ewok Sort of thing. Yeah. We'll, uh, he'll come here to this spot and we'll fight him a little bit and then we'll run away and we'll have more spears 20 meters down the road and then we'll fight him there and then we'll run more spears back and we'll fight him a little more. Yeah. You know what I mean? It felt like we were on the moon of Endor, right? Um, and then it, they meet in the river and there's more fighting. The bear gets at Alec. Um, he comes back over the top, wards him off, lures him and then... Anthony Hopkins does the sucker punch where he gets the spear, sticks it, and Bart the Bear gets up on the hind legs to then sort of come down on Anthony Hopkins and he sort of goes whoosh straight through the middle. Um, The thing I thought was really cute was then when (laughs) Bart the Bear dies, he makes the same noise that my dog makes when he goes to sleep. Oh, really? I didn't even notice that. What was it? Where it's the big sort of like... Oh, Bart was tired. I thought you were going to say that he he happened to, even though Anthony Hopkins was right under him when he skewered him and he fell, he was nice enough to fall a little bit to the side so that just like an arm was over Anthony Hopkins' character. He's not smothered. And think about this. Alec Baldwin must really like Elle McPherson if his life has just been saved and he's still thinking... Days or weeks later, he's almost like, I'm still going to kill this guy. Yeah, they they fought off a like 700-pound man-eating bear together. They skinned it, ate it, wore its carcasses fur, hiked for another six months or something, found a cabin, and then he's like, now's the chance to kill him. Shotgun, because I couldn't do it any other way. Yeah. Any other way, too hard. Well, this way, shotgun. That was a question. Um, uh Anthony Hopkins, uh, when um, Harold Perrineau's character bleeds, and they're like, "We got to hide the, we got to hide the bloody rags. Go bury this." And then they are wandering around, and he tells Alec Baldwin, "Bury this rag." Alec Baldwin runs off, and then a couple of days later, they set up camp, and they see the wet, bloody rag hanging on a tree, and that's yeah. when Bart the Bear attacks and kills Harold. Do you think Alec Baldwin was like, "This bear is going to kill him. I'm going to lure this bear in, sacrifice." Charles, I definitely think that was an idea that would have got thrown around in the writer's room. Um, I think we're good. What do you reckon? All right, that's enough on the edge. We are going to touch on, in honor of Bart the Bart Bear. Bart the Bear, also just like, so great. Bart the Bear, uh, this podcast, we should have said it at the top, today is his 23rd anniversary of Bart the Bear's death. May 10th, 2000, and it would have been 2000 then. There you go. May 10th, 2000. So in honor of Bart the Bear, we're going to rank our top five animals in film. But before we do that, we'll take a quick break and then we'll do a little little quick explainer, 10 minutes on the Writers Guild strike. Uh, welcome back to the event screening. We are going to quickly touch on, I'm sure some people have heard the news, the WGA, Writers Guild of America, Writers Strike. Um, and just what that might mean and kind of a rundown of why they're doing it. Um, are you kind of across much of it? A little bit. So I'm not exactly sure what like sort of terms that they're after, but obviously that this is looking at 
looking at better conditions from the last Riders Strike, which was what, like 13 years ago, 15 years ago sort of thing? 2007 and 8. Yeah, and so that was closed pretty much. I think the immediate the immediacy that we can sort of recognise from a TV impact is like a lot of the Tonight shows are just off air at the moment. They're playing repeats, even though that's not something we often talk about. So I've watched the Tonight Show in a good while, um, so that's the immediate sort of thing. What's give me a bit of a layman's term? What's going on, and also what is this going to affect? Yes, yeah, so, in the next like, sort of six to nine, twelve months. So the really quick kind of layman's term is essentially, and streaming services didn't exist in the last Rider Strike. And so, so we're looking at tech as sort of a main player now. Tech v creatives and tech, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, um, all these things app, um, have long been known for being big union busting, low wage payers. So this is going to be a massive thing. The last writer's strike went for 100 days, but it was creatives v creatives. This is, uh, to put it kind of very succinctly and kind of crassly, is like money hoarding tech bro CEOs against creatives who have the biggest union in the world. And what they're essentially arguing is a thing called uh, residuals, which essentially means you don't make as a writer, you don't make all your money necessarily upfront. You make a certain salary. And if you say write an episode of Friends, you wrote an episode of Friends for $15,000, dollars $30,000 and you kind of walk away. And for a writer, it sounds like a lot for writing one episode, but that's kind of like three months work. It's not a lot. But yep. every single time that episode replayed, you'd get another $20,000 and another $20,000. So you essentially, if you wrote this fantastic episode to the point that the network wanted to keep replaying it because of how good it was, you participated in the success of it by getting $20,000 every time they replayed it, which is residuals. And that's the thing is like the, the model for that is completely outdated where it's not based on TV networks, and a TV schedule. It, we're looking at streaming in an on-demand sort of environment. So it's an antiquated, older system, but it also speaks of how vastly the landscape has changed in the past decade. Yeah, and uh, streaming networks put something on and don't release their figures of how many times it's been watched or anything like that. They just say kind of X amount of viewing hours, but they haven't updated their residuals. So a writer who would have once got 20 grand every time in an episode replayed they're now getting residual checks for like 20 cents. Uh, there's there's right. one really famous writer who's getting like 0.06 cents every time somebody watches an episode of his show. Um, Abbott Elementary, which is uh, a comedy uh, that is like... Hulu absolutely, and Disney sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely loved in the States. I think we both tried to watch a bit of it. And it was okay, but... Um, I've watched a bit of it, but it's like background wallpaper TV, sort of Ted yeah. Lasso-esque. Won a gazillion Emmys, but the as an example of the current state of it, it's season three finale was one of the most streamed episodes of anything in history, was nominated for a Screenwriters Guild Award and an Emmy. And the guy who wrote that episode was applying for a job at Target at the time he got told he was nominated for an Emmy because he had no money. Woof. He was in credit. And that's essentially the whole situation is that people are flocking to these streaming services and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars because of shows like this and Stranger Things. But the writers who actually drive that traffic aren't participating in profits afterwards. They're only getting their upfront fee, no matter how good or bad it is. And so the big thing is kind of like Netflix when it launched. It's streaming service uh, launched with House of Cards, Stranger Things, things like that, which were written by really, really good writers and would never have made an impact if they didn't launch with shows like that. But to talk about, not not to spend too long on it, but to talk about the possible impact now, Stranger Things has been Netflix's flagship show forever since they started. Yeah, it's, it's, their, it's their main tentpole. It's their main tentpole show. Um, the, third, the fourth season aired last year. They were in the writer's room for the final season and have all put their pens down and said, we're not writing until we get better pay. So if that delay extends for 100 days or more like last time, it will probably be three to four years between last season and their final season. Yeah, because if there's a 100-day delay, that doesn't necessarily mean 
that oh, the production was behind 100 days. That can mean a whole bunch of things because we, then you're looking at schedules yep. of talent and availability and everything is a 100-day delay. And so you know working with the TV industry, that's not 100 days. That, that could be anything, really. Yeah, and I think the figures, like they, it's, it's essentially tech billionaires controlling this now and pushing back because I think Netflix made... billion in 2022. They've got two CEOs and those CEOs make $35 million each a year. And what writers are asking for in terms of residuals essentially accounts for, I think it's 1.8% of streaming services profits. So it's really, it's a minimal amount compared to like, and this is the creative output. I suppose that's also interesting when you look at for example, Netflix is an interesting model where you look at a lot of their outlay. Well, there's a lot of shows, right? But we're seeing a greater proportion of their output is now reality-based rather than sort of what it used to be. Their business model and the, what they're looking from a creative standpoint is really shifted. When like when it launched on the seat, it was things like House of Cards, um, Orange is the New Black and stuff like this where it was chasing these prestige sort of thing like Ozark later on was sort of like that second or third wave and now there's really nothing then like I talked about the diplomat last week I was almost like what is this okay but not great yeah and so but the the greater proportion of the stuff that they're churning out is um, reality and like I'm not saying that a majority of it is it's just like a greater proportion of their output is that sort of stuff and that that may or may not sort of have a direct relationship with their writing staff or what they want to pay for or the type of productions that they want to greenline but i think there's an interesting sort of it's part of the wider conversation i don't want to get us sidetracked and talking about that specific but i think it's part of the the ecosystem yeah definitely and um there and one of the other big things is this idea um of the, the threat of AI writing scripts. Um, and they, if anyone types in, write me a one-page script, I did it, but I don't have it with me, so I won't read it out. But type me a one-page script in a chat GPT, give it all the parameters and see what comes out. And it's the most bullshit thing ever. It's so rubbish. And all they asked for was an acknowledgement from streaming services that said only human writers will be considered payable and employable on shows, essentially saying you won't, use chat GBT to write your scripts. And they said, yeah. no, we're not going to commit to that. We'll have a meeting once a year to address emerging technologies, which is insane. And to kind of wrap it up, I think the for people wondering what it might mean, we kind of talked about Stranger Things. It'll probably be two more years and a four-year gap before their final season comes back. Um, we've raved about Yellow Jackets on this show. Uh, they were literally day one of their season three writer's room when the strike happened. So season three, we're about to finish season two. That could be two and a half years away now because of a hundred day or more delay. Yeah, because you might be looking at a pretty large vacuum of shows, not this year, but looking at next year. Yeah, it won't be this year. Um, Everything's already in the can. Yeah. Uh, Rings of Power on Amazon, they spent $500 million on this show, half a billion dollars. They finished their scripts, but now they're filming without their showrunners. So showrunners are the guys who create the entire story, oversee every single script, know the minuscule details, so they can film it without them. But if something happens where they can't get the set they want or or a set is washed away and they need to rewrite a scene to move location or because an actor got sick then the only people who know how that will affect later scenes are showrunners. It's not producers on the set. So um, even Andor is filming season two right now and Tony Gilroy, as the godfather of that show, has stepped away. He's not on set right now for the making of that show. See, I think that's interesting because these are also shows that they're willing to make huge investments on. And so, so Amazon is a really great example there with the Rings of Power that it is such a huge financial investment that they are making in buying that IP and the production, the the um, special effects that are involved in that sort of show. But now we're sort of... It's interesting that there's a blockage now from a creative standpoint when everything else from a financial perspective was like, no object, we'll pay that. Yeah, and it's 
like, and that's the most frustrating part for us. They're asking for like two percent of profits that these things make every year. They know they've spent two hundred million, five hundred million on these shows, but when they ask for two percent of profits, these networks are like, "No, we're not going to give you that." Um, the the best kind of example of the possible future that I heard the other day, just to kind of finish up, is the show on Amazon called Citadel. Did you have you watched it? No, but I've heard different things about it. Yes, so Citadel is the um, Rob from Game of Thrones spy show with Anthony Tucci and um, Priya something Jonas, uh, executive produced by the Russo brothers from Marvel. And it is a $300 million TV show with only six episodes. So whatever that is split across six episodes, $300 million overall. It is apparently rubbish. I watched one app and thought it was pretty rubbish and didn't watch any more. It also sounds like the sort of thing that you would actually like as well. Yeah, and it wasn't good. And that is an example, if you have seen any of it and thought it was crap, no one pitched that show to anyone. The so Amazon pitched it. Amazon pitched it. So you must have heard the same thing I did. So the head of Amazon pitched this idea to the Russo brothers and said, this is a international possible IP where we can make a show about an international group of spies. We can do one in the UK and then we can look at this same group of spies, but in their Australian branch and their Indian branch and their China branch, and they can have this IP all around the world and make five different citadels in five different countries. Yeah, That is what happens when a CEO pitches an idea and makes this shit show and tells writers what they should make and doesn't let writers come to them and make it. It's like Top Chef, but we're going to make it a drama. Yeah, Top Chef's good though. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you have any... I think that was good. I think that was it. Um, Yeah, kind of sucks. And I think the, the major point is, yeah, you won't see anything now, but come next year... Your favorite shows are either going to be delayed by a year or they're going to go ahead without the creators who made it and they're going to be a lot shitter than you're expecting. There'll be be quality issues potentially looking at certain shows. And I think it'll be interesting that you might also see studios trying to be creative and how could we churn something out really quick or those sort of things. So that, that, that also, once this is over, that might all... There'll be a greater demand to get things done super quick. What sort of things can we greenlight that we can film in X amount of days and we can get onto a, stra- uh, onto a screen in six months' time? Yeah, it's it's going to be... I think we're going to see a lot of reality. Um, they've... You kind of... Specifically, Writers Guild have come out and said, if you're not with us and you start taking writers' jobs and pitching shows, you might get a show up now, but you'll never be employed again once the strike's over. Yeah. And they call them all scabs and stuff. Um, but anyway, speaking of new ideas and writers guilds, uh, some breaking news came out this week in the media and entertainment industry, and you sent me a screenshot immediately and got very excited about it. What was it? So Will Ferrell is looking at doing a live golf sort of film. I assume it's going to be like a spoof. Is it, I'm not sure what the tone will be, if it's going to be more Talladega Nights or it's going to be more like... Adam McKay-esque sort of later like Vice and shit like that. Um, The reason why we're talking about this is this is something I messaged you about about a month ago and I just thought somebody had done cast the live movie on Instagram and I sent you the video so I was like, this is fucking perfect Um, because live golf and I'll do a little bit of parameters for what that is for some people. Effectively, golf is in a civil war at the moment between the establishment, the US sort of tour, and this Saudi Arabian-backed Live Golf brought to you by Australia's The Shark, Greg Norman. Greg Norman. Um, I don't really particularly care about golf, but I think it's it is such an interesting premise that we have an establishment, but we have a rogue operator um, acting as a disruptor in a 2023 sort of age. It's very, for, for the Australian audience, it's very, um, it's uh, World Series cricket v. Test Match cricket. It's T20 cricket versus um, Test Match cricket. But even more 
like anti-establishment. Geopolitical upon it because it's yeah, Saudi yeah. Arabia doing sports washing and Saudi Arabia makes a lot of oil. Um, they've got maybe makes a, a lot dubious, of oil. <laughs> they've, got, they, they've got a pretty dubious human rights record. And I think four of the top six athletes in the world are all on Saudi Arabia's sort of bankroll. So Saudi Arabia's shaking it up and they're going to be almost like we're investing in sports to fix our image. <laughs> and now you've had all these American sort of golfers and sort of golfers all around the world sign up and but they're signing up for ludicrous amounts of money. So for example, like a guy who would have won, let's say 20 mil on the tour is now being offered, you want to come and play in our sort of tournament for 40 mil. And it's almost like, yeah. Yeah, I still get to play golf uh, in front of fans and make twice as much money. And play like an eighth of what they would normally. So that is something that's happening in the sports world at the moment. Um, But it has this also backlash in the United States where it's almost like if you go to the Rebel Tour, like Saudi Arabia had links to 9-11 and stuff like that, but the United States still sells arms to Saudi Arabia as well, technically. Yeah, and also the people who are like, you can't go play this, it's not proper, they have links to terrorist organizations are also probably Trump supporters and Trump is a backer of Live Golf. So what are you all talking about? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a really bizarre. And I think that's why it's so right for satire at the moment. It's such an interesting sort of property that's happening in media at the moment. And it's not just a sports story. This is a geopolitical, social sort of thing on top of it. And it's also effectively, it's a money movie. It's a sports movie, but disguised as geopolitical and money. And I think that's why like Adam McKay and Will Ferrell is obviously interested in this premise. And I think you can just get a lot of like white guy actors between <laughs> 30s and their 60s just to play golfers. I think the premise, I chucked an idea of like, let's just get Jerry McConnell out there because he's just a generic white guy that will be, be loves a catchphrase. Like he'll be like, are we having fun yet when he's on the tee? Do you get? Do you just get like Adam McKay and Will Ferrell's people? Like Paul Rudd comes in, Steve Carell comes in, Seth Rogen comes in, and they're all just kind of. Or do you think that becomes too on the nose? That's too much. The so, what I think it will be, I think it'll go down that angle. What I want to pitch is something alternative, because we can see what's happened in sports media over the past two or three years. That F one drive to survive is a mammoth, and it's actually changed the face of the sport. It's also something that Netflix absolutely loves because it gets subs, gets huge, review, uh, huge sort of numbers, and then also we're seeing this trickle on effect that other sports want a piece of that pie of that the the sports doco week to week sort of thing, where surfing has one I think on Apple. Um, Tennis has one on Netflix and it is so bad. It's so fucking boring. And then if you thought the tennis one was boring, they've got a golf one and it is so boring. It's just white, privileged white guys walking around their huge homes, <laughs> hitting golf balls and in Texas. And it's like, this is, is this it? So before this, the, I want to, I want to give you credit where it's due uh, well, first off, you buried the lead on the Will Ferrell movie. Um, Adam Sandler is reportedly coming back as Happy Gilmore for that. So I don't mind that as a cameo. So long as it's a cameo. But to give you the credit, you're pitching a show that you sent to me a month before the Will Ferrell golf show was even released. Yeah. So this is, this is you should have written it on the spot kind of premonition. Finger on the pulse. I've known this is a good thing for ages. And so what I want to pitch is a satirization of that drive to survive model. I think you could do um, like an American... Is it an American Vandal? Yes. You could do a version of that where it's drive to survive and it's live golf. And I think it would be fucking hilarious where you get guys... Like, for example, as I said, the Jerry O'Connell where he's gettable for something like this. I don't think Ryan Gosling <laughs> is signing up to this project, but Jerry O'Connell is such a, he plays a perfect sleazebag. And that's what some of these golfers are on tour. And I think he would be great in this where it's almost like, of course I'm going to take the money. I don't care who, the, these got, and the premise is, so Saudi Arabia paying all this money and people are almost like, oh, don't you have any cons- human rights concerns? It's almost like, I don't care about the human rights concerns. Somebody's willing to pay me that amount of money. I will take that from anyone. This is 
it, and I feel like it's massive right now what they could do with this because um, we were raving about Jury Duty last week, like a fake yeah. documentary with a real person. Um, you talked about American Vandal, which was a massive hit on Netflix a few years ago. Um, I absolutely loved the series Kunk on Earth um, yeah. on Netflix, which was the kind of fake historian documentary with a character pretending to be a presenter. Um, there's so many out right now that a doco that isn't real with actors, like as if it is a real documentary yeah. about Live Golf would be so good. And I think as well, the format of that show done in that drive to survive format, which has now become a behemoth and everybody is trying to copy. I think that's where it's really ripe. And you'd have to, to, to do the it drama created. Would you, do you think it would be better with no name actors completely so that the, the only reason I say that is because you would pitch it and advertise it and promote it and put it on Netflix as if it was completely legit. Oh, the same, I, yeah. I, like, don't even... I don't know the, about that. I think I would really like that guy's to cook. I'd like, okay. um, as in Adam Scott from, yep. like, Parks and Rec to play Adam Scott, the, the yep. Australian golfer. <laughs> I'd like Paul Rudd to turn up. I'd like, like again, Matthew McConaughey to just swagger around. Okay. I'm not saying we would get those sort of... We, we would get this... <laughs> when we set up a production house, right? When we pitch um, this. But th- that's the premise that I'm sort of pitching. Okay. I get it. Yeah. You'd want, you'd want people to kind of be drawn to this to be kind of be like, why are these people in this documentary? Oh, wait, that's why. How about, how about we do some casting next week? Okay, let's cast the uh, the Netflix thing, and I'll write a pitch for the script. Uh, in the yeah, meantime. how about we come up? We got to come up with three est- three of the establishment golfers, three of the rebel golfers. Who's going to play the Greg Norman s character, and then who is going to be like the commentators? Who's going to play the shark? Who has a massive swinging thing between his legs? <laughs> Who can play that role and also be a little bit racist and misogynistic? Jack Nicholas. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe too old though. Because have you seen the shark? He's fit. He's real. Is he still? How old is he now? Oh, like yeah. 60? He's been mid-60s. He's a good-looking Nich- rooster. Nicholson's like 80 now. And is a massive slob now. Yeah, uh, also in other breaking news, just completely off the rail, but did you see Robert De Niro has just welcomed his seventh child at the age of 79? What? <laughs> Dude, okay, right. You've got to take that and that's going at the start of the pod. What? <laughs> Robert, Robert De Niro is 79 years old and his partner, I assume, just gave birth to his seventh kid. Is, is that a subplot of the Irishman or something like that? Is that what happens in the fourth hour of the Irishman? Yeah, when the de-aging technology finally wears off and we have to sit through a sex scene of Robert De Niro at the age of 80 so he can have a kid. That's wild. Yeah. So um, apparently not as much of a slob as Jack Nicholson at about the see, same age. He, see, he doesn't know when the heat's around the corner. <laughs> He's got to walk away. He's got to walk away. Oh, man. Um, did you have anything else or do you want to take a break and then run through our top five animals in film? Yeah, we'll, we'll of- come back and we'll cap it off with that. Okay, welcome back to the advanced screening. We promised it at the start. Bart the Bear, the greatest actor in film, should have been nominated instead of James Woods, celebrating his uh, 23rd anniversary of his death. In honor of that, we have made separate lists. We haven't seen each other's lists, and we are going to name our top five animals in film. Uh, We can go one at a time, um, and if we both have someone in the list, we'll just talk about it. Uh, We had parameters. It has to be a real animal played by a real animal as best as possible um, in terms of... Yeah, I think I've got that. Yeah. Uh, You might call me out on one of them. But I think I've got it. Okay. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um, you can go first. We'll fly through it. We, like, we don't have to sort of psychoanalyze each, each, each and every one. My very first one at number five, and I told you earlier that I've got something very similar to something you sent me. Uh, the Crocodiles from Live and Let Die, uh, the James Bond film. Yeah. 
which is um, very bad for uh, black culture, misappropriation and voodooism. But the only reason I put the crocodiles in this film is, uh, you might remember very quickly, James Bond gets stuck on an island in a crocodile sanctuary. And they leave him to get eaten. And to get out, he runs across the back of three crocodiles in the water to escape. Sick. I'm bringing this up because I'm not sure. Have you seen the footage of the stuntman doing that? No. So this was a real stunt. They're live crocs? They're live crocs. Why would they do that? They're live crocs because it was James Bond and it was the 70s. And I said Is it Roger Moore? No. The the movie is Roger Moore. Yeah, okay. But um, the... I said stuntman very generously. It wasn't a stuntman. His name was uh, Ross Kananga, who was the owner of the crocodile farm they were filming at. Makes sense. We'll give you 60 grand if you run across the back of your crocodiles. So he was like, cool. He did it four times, fell in every time. On the fifth time, he made it across. For his troubles, he got 60 grand and 193 stitches in his leg and his head. There's if oh you if you look up live and let die crocodile stunt, uh, go do that and come back. Uh, you That's see cool. the four times that he does it and falls in the water. At one point, one of the crocs sees him come in, leaps up, grabs his foot and rips his shoe off. And that's essentially where he got the 193 stitches in his leg. And he's like, we'll do it one more time. And he made it on the last time. So get porcelain crocodiles. <laughs> that is that, not necessary. That is not necessary at all. But it was James Bond, so they went for it. So crocodiles in Live and Let Die. Um, I crocodile uh, honorable mention crocodiles from Indiana Jones. Oh, the Temple um, of Doom. Temple of Doom, tugging and rolling on sheets and blood. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm coming in. I'm coming with a weird one. The unicorn from Blade Runner. Ah, what does the unicorn mean in Blade Runner, Tom? Can you explain Uh, it? It's pretty debatable, but I think the whole premise of the unicorn in Blade Runner, it is a dream that is implanted into replicants. And if they have that dream that, and they sort of can talk that they understand that they are replicant or that's a, that's an identifying feature of a replicant. So they're not human, I think is the interpretation, (laughs) but pretty much they've got a horse. And then they've stuck the thing on it and that they've got it running through a dream sequence. And that's the horse. That's like the unicorn. We, we're going to go for another hour now, but um, Harrison Ford has a unicorn dream, doesn't he? And didn't Blade Runner 2049 prove he wasn't a replicant? Oh, don't get me started. Because there are two cuts of Blade Runner. <laughs> there is the cinematic release. There is then the director's cut. And they have very different... They're both ambiguous, but they are both very different in their interpretations of who Harrison Ford is, whether he's human or replicant. I am that I am not starting that right now because nineteen-year-old me was very passionate about this. This can you go to your um to your archives and pull out your notes that you probably wrote about this next week? For, let's uh, do that for Year Twelve art we'll, history and we will, media. We will cover live golf and we'll cast live golf, and I'll talk about Blade Runner. And we will do what no one in forty years has been able to do and definitively <laughs> say was Harrison Ford a replicant. Um, Right, my number four was Shadow Facts from Lord of the Rings. Uh, the White Which one Horse. was that? So that's the, in Two Towers when they meet Gandalf the White for the first time. And they come out of the forest and he does like a little whistle. He's like, Ooh. Yeah. And a white horse comes running out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. And Gandalf says the word uh, Shadow Facts, uh, Lord of the Realm of Horses. And he... <laughs> as a thousand-year-old wizard jumps on bareback on this white horse and just rides this horse. Um, is is the, that a... My question is, is that a horse of Rohan? No, it's a horse of the horse realms? I don't know. It's a lord of the horse of the... Because the, Rohan is the, the, the horse land. Well, I don't think Rohan's horses have, according to the official Lord of the Rings Wikipedia, I don't believe they have incredible speed strength stamina and the ability to understand human speech which is apparently what this sick. horse has sick um, shout out to the two horses that played shadow facts blanco and demiro um fun fact i when we we binged um lord of the rings about a year ago and for about three months i called my dog flip the rider of rohan <laughs> just really got into it I do, I do. Um, I've got the bear from the Revenant. Yeah, 
Because I think that's a, that's a Bart the Bear tribute act. What's going on there? <laughs> oh, Is that CGI script. or an actual bear? I think that's CGI. That's CGI. But I'm going to put it there anyway because it's almost like that could only happen because Bart the Bear did it. Yeah, the CGI bear in The Revenant ran because Bart the Bear walked, walked. on his on his hind legs with great training from Douglas. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, do you stand by, do you think that the bear forcibly tried to have intercourse with Leonardo DiCaprio? No. No, <laughs> why, why would I think no. that? Because that was, when that movie came out, that was all the internet was talking about. Was this I know. bear trying to get on top of Leo? People on the internet are scary and weird and I don't like it. <laughs> Good summary. Uh, my number three is the saddest on probably both our lists, but it's Sam the German Shepherd from I Am Legend. Oh. <sighs> As a dog owner, as a dog owner, your soul just left your body. So this is um, Will Smith's character, Robert Neville. Uh, Everyone else in the world dies. He gets his daughter a dog before she dies, and she gives it back to him just as she's getting on a helicopter and dies. Um, His only companion gets infected by zombie dogs trying to save his life. Lives long enough for him to take her home, give her a little pat, and then suffocate her to death in a harrowing scene. Sam, bummer. <laughs> real bummer. Uh, in better news, Sam was played by two dogs, Abby and Kona. Um, <laughs> this was the only film they starred in. Will Smith tried to adopt them, but the trainer said no. No. Uh, and a good shout out to Abby and Kona. Uh, for some reason, there wasn't a lot of trained German shepherds in the area, so they found this these dogs in a kennel and trained them to act and in that movie them. in a month. Sick. How so, good. Abby and Kona, Sam from I Am Legend. So, bummer of a story, but like, nice ending. Nice ending. Um, I'm going to really stink the place out right now. So, I've got the kangaroos from Wake and Fright. Have you seen Wake and Fright? Yes. <laughs> so, that is an actual kangaroo hunt that is filmed. And it's got Jack Thompson, the Australian actor, shooting and fighting and stabbing a kangaroo. And that actually happened. I didn't know that. It's wild. It's exploitation on film, um, and this is actual animal cruelty within the film. And it's—I remember when I saw it at the—it was the Art Gallery New South Wales with Sam, and it was visibly disturbing and upsetting. Um, but it, it completely was crucial to it because it, it documented. It pro- I wouldn't say it was necessarily crucial, but what it demonstrated was this absolutely untamed. Fuckness, brutality of the, of the brutality of the people in the land, and then the next day we drove to Cobar, and then um, Hit any to kangaroos? see our friend Shane. So Cobar in Western New South Wales in the outback, um, and then we went to a drinks at somebody's house before we went to the races at Cobar Race Day, and one of the guys there t- rocked up in his ute, and he just said, "Yeah, we've been on a roo hunt all night. I've just got got um got back, had a shower, and I've come here, and it's almost like." Fuck, they still do that. <laughs> did they that, then, that film was made 40 years ago. Did they then take you to the pub and force you to drink? What's what's that hilarious scene from that movie? It's like, why the fuck you don't want another fucking beer? What's wrong with you? <laughs> why the fuck you don't want another fucking beer? <laughs> the yabba. <laughs> oh, we should man. watch that. We should watch that and talk about that. I just love that guy so much. That guy's voice. What the hell's wrong with you, eh? Why won't you have a bloody beer, man? <laughs> Oh, that's gonna. Those are gonna be peaking so much. Um, I this animal didn't do a whole lot, but the filmmaking around it is why it gets a good mention. Uh, but I'm doing the husky from the start of the thing. Oh yeah. So uh, just because the presence of this dog is probably one of the best openings in movies in general, let alone horror thriller movies. Um, it opens on. No explanation, no English speakers, guys speaking German or Swedish or Norwegian or something. And a dog's running through the snow and guys in a helicopter are chasing after it and shooting at it. And you don't know why. You don't know what's happening. The dog arrives at a base in Antarctica. The other guys die. And then for the next 30 minutes, you just follow this dog around as if it's like a horror movie villain stalking all these people where you don't really know what's going on until about 30 minutes in where its head splits open and an alien comes out of it. So, Whoa. Husky from The Thing. You've seen the movie, haven't you? No, I haven't. We saw it together. The Thing? No. Yeah. No. 
You think it's somebody else, mate? Well, spoiler alert. The husky, <laughs> the husky is bad. <laughs> so the husky from the thing, I think it's just an incredible opening to have these guys shooting at a dog and you don't know why until... Yeah. Uh, so my number two, number two is the birds from the birds. Yeah. Really? Think about the scale that that film is working at with the amount of birds that are there. How are they shooting that? It's quite yeah, a feat for the, for the era. How, how do you think they shot it? A lot of it wasn't real birds, but there were some real birds. Yeah, there's, of course. And I think there's a, probably a fair bit of composite photography and stuff like that. But um, the, And it's also the animal there is a sense of fear, but a, not a traditional sense. So I really that's like how that's actually a really good point. W- yeah. What yeah, do you guys think? and um, do you reckon they had a bird wrangler on scene like Doug Zeus? Was there a bird trainer? There would be a bird specialist. Or maybe, wouldn't it be funny if there's not? It's just like, we've got a box of all these birds. What are we going to do with it? We're going to chuck them down the chimney. We went to a seaside town and threw chips everywhere and suddenly we got 100 birds. Roll the camera. <laughs> Roll it. We've got one packet of chips. <laughs> Do your best. We got one pack of the chips. We got two rolls of film. Let's go. <laughs> get it going. Uh, before I get to my number one, uh, I don't know if you did this, but I did a couple of um, honorable mentions. Uh, Brandy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Brad Brad Pitt, oh, yeah. people, who in this alternate reality version absolutely shreds to death uh, Manson, Charles Manson's killers. Uh, Baxter from Anchorman because he ate the whole wheel of cheese and Great can shout. communicate with yeah. Ron Burgundy. Uh, and number one, I wanted to do uh, Rocket Raccoon because I just saw Guardians 3 this weekend. And yeah. incredible movie. Loved it. It has it has really? saved the MCU. I'm saying it right now. Okay, we need to talk about this because I've heard very conflicting things. I loved it. Save it for next week. But Rocket Raccoon is a full CGI thing, so I didn't want to do it. I am doing... I don't know if you'll love this pick, but I'm doing Ghost from Game of Thrones. Yeah, fair shout. I'm fine with that. That's technically not a film, but I'm okay. Ghost from Game of Thrones uh, was played by a real uh, wolf-husky kind of hybrid that they then just resized in post to make look bigger. Uh, That dog's name was Quigley. Uh, Very, very cute. Ghost, the loyal dog. Uh, I love the story. The, this Quigley's owner and trainer uh, essentially was harassed for about seven years straight that Game of Thrones was on because everyone would call him thinking he wasn't really trained in the arts of media communication and try to catch him on Game of Thrones spoilers. So like, yeah. where's Ghost now? Who came and filmed with Ghost? Is John still alive? And all this stuff. And this guy just be like, I don't know, man. I'm a dog trainer. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That says a lot about our media. Oh, yeah. Especially Game of Thrones at its peak. Like, massive. So, very loyal. He makes it to the end. He goes north with John. Happy ending. Game of Thrones spoilers. Ghost. Love Ghost. So I've got one honorable mention and then I've got my number one. So my one honorable mention is the dog from No Country for Old Men. Do you remember the scene? Dog from No Country for... Oh, the, do- the, the dog that gives it all to chase um, Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin, yes. And then gets a bullet to the face. Yes. And it's, and it's a dog that Josh Brolin is running away from the dog. Um, it's what, early morning? Yeah, and sort of Josh Brolin is running through the Texas sort of countryside away from the like the Mexican cartel, and they've released the dog on him, and then he jumps in the river and starts swimming, thinking, "Oh, the dog won't do that." The dog fully dives in and starts paddling, and this dog is going so quick. And Josh Brolin gets to the other side of the bank, and he sees the dog coming, and this dog is ready to rip him to pieces. <laughs> and the dog leaps up to get him. And Josh Bowen shoots him in the face and there's like the dog collapses. And it's almost like that dog was so intense. I've always found that like partly comical and partly like proper horror film because he, you're right. It's like the sun's only just coming up and he dives in the river and then this dog comes after him. And he's swimming for like two minutes to the point that like the sun's gotten higher in the sky. Yeah. He's getting tired. He turns around and then you just see the dog's head just still <laughs> going. He's paddling for sheer life. Just still going. The, the dog is like Olympic swimming. <laughs> and it's still going. And then he gets to the bank and he turns around and it's like, the dog's still swimming. <laughs> Good honorable mention. 
Um, and my number one is Snowflake from Ace Ventura Pet Detective because it is a plot driver. Is Snowflake the dolphin that goes missing? Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> from Miami Stadium. Yes. Because of the dolphins. That brought us one of Jim Carrey's best performances. <laughs> and uh, so the dolphins in it a bit. I haven't seen the movie for ages, but I was thinking about it today. Maybe that's something we need to watch as well. <laughs> <laughs> Keep adding it to the list. Yeah. Um, I think that would be funny. Um, and it, it, it runs with a theme that we're doing at the moment. Um, but yeah, because Snowflake does some interesting things there. We'll have to get a Is its name we'll... Snowflake? Yes, that, that is the dolphin's name. Oh my God. And it does all the flipper stuff, but it's such a great plot device. Good first pick. I, I mean, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, you could have picked so many from the second one. But the the one that gave us Ace Ventura. I think that's also a film that could actually have like a cult revival in some ways. It's already is in some ways a cult film, but it's almost like I think I think the Gen Z, the Zoomers, could could refine. Yeah, that it's going to come back. back around. I think, yeah, yeah, does that make all sense? It, all it takes is someone posting the GIF of him coming out of the rhino's ass. And it'll, be, <laughs> and it'll be back on back on the screens for sure. And then the whole idea then is also think about the fashion and the hair of Jim Carrey in that era. And I think that's something Zoomers would appreciate. It's coming back. Yeah, um, right? That is a perfect place to leave it. As we said, RIP Bart the Bear. He's, that was for you, man. We respect your work. And you should have got that Oscar instead of James Woods. I'm going to kill that motherfucker. (laughs) All right. Thanks, mate. See you later. Have a good one.